This is the third of four podcasts exploring some of the poetic opening moments in the history of cinema, by which I mean openings that encapsulate the film's content, what I call a compound moment. What we see and hear is so strong, it doesn't merely open the story, but succinctly establishes character, time, place, and above all, theme. Previously, we have discussed how those elements are established visually. The following two episodes will look at how they are established verbally. As carefully designed as an opening image may be, dialogue doesn't always accompany it. Sometimes we have to wait quite a while for words to be spoken, which is what happened way back in 1927 with the release of The Jazz Singer. Wait a minute, wait a minute, you ain't heard nothing yet. Wait a minute, I tell you, you ain't heard nothing. You want to hear Toot 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 All right, hold on, hold on. No, listen, play Toot 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 three chorus, you understand? And the third chorus, I whistle. Now give it to him hard and heavy. Go right ahead. But those words are not spoken until 23 minutes into the picture. However, before that, we hear the singing voice of Jackie Rabinowitz, played by Al Jolson. Wonderful pals are always hard to find. Some folks have one. Some folks have none. And I was alone for years, but fate was kind. And in the end, sent me a friend. And even before we heard Jolson singing, there were intertitle cards that told us that his father, the cantor in the local synagogue, was horrified to learn that his son was misusing his voice by singing secular songs in a cafe. For me, that invites the question, What defines the opening lines in a film? In Paul Thomas Anderson's There Will Be Blood, the first words are not spoken until 17 minutes in. Ladies and gentlemen, I've traveled over half our state to be here tonight. I couldn't get away sooner because my new well was coming in at Coyote Hills and I had to see about it. That well is now flowing at 2,000 barrels and it's paying me an income of $5,000 a week. But before that, we get grunts and groans and gasps. Not words, but vocal expressions. The same goes for Stanley Kubrick's 2001, which goes a full 25 minutes before anything comprehensible is said. Here you are, sir. Main level, please. I say comprehensible because, again, before that, we hear this. And according to some people, in Andrew Stanton's Wally, we don't hear a voice, human, computer simulated, or delivered via digital recording, until nearly 40 minutes. Not true, because in the opening seconds, we hear this. Outside of Yonkers, way out there beyond this hick town, Barnaby. There's a slick town, Barnaby. Out there, full of shine and full of sparkle. Close your eyes and see it. Listen, Barnaby. Listen, Barnaby. Jerry Herman composed Put On Your Sunday Clothes for the Broadway musical Hello Dolly, which opened in 1964. However, it's not the lyrics that Wally is interested in. 
but the accompanying visual clips from the 20th Century Fox movie made in 1969. This shows Cornelius Hackle, played by Michael Crawford, reaching out to and holding hands with Irene Malloy, played by Marianne McAndrew. Put on your sunbling clothes, we're gonna ride through town. That is pre-existing music. Commissioned music is another matter. There, the songwriter is aware of the script and the director's intentions, and so a concerted effort is made to synchronise the respective elements. For me, there is no better example of that than this. Wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up, up you wake, up you wake, up you wake, up you wake. This is Mr. Senior Love Daddy, your voice of choice, the world's only 12-hour strong man on the air, here on We Love Radio 108 FM, the last on your dial, but first in your hearts, and that's the truth. Released in 1989, Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing is one of the truly great American films. But the first words come not from Samuel L. Jackson's Mr. Senior Love Daddy, but Public Enemy, and they are heard over the opening credits. Lee wrote Do the Right Thing in a fevered two-week burst in 1988 and had initially approached his father and jazz musician Bill Lee to do some of the soundtrack. But Spike Lee also wanted a contemporary urban sound that would convey the energy, urgency, anger, fear and exhaustive tension that courses through the Brooklyn neighbourhood on that sweltering summer's day. For the opening credits, Lee wanted a woman dancing to a song. His inspiration came from the 1963 comedy Bye Bye Birdie, which featured Anne Margaret singing and dancing in front of a blue screen. But Lee didn't want that song. He wanted Cool Jerk by the Capitals. But cool as Cool Jerk is, it is from another era, and Lee knew he needed a contemporary sound, rhythm and lyric. So, when Public Enemy came back with Fight the Power, Lee knew how to sharpen the opening credits. Already cast as Tina, a Puerto Rican single mother, Rosie Perez wasn't so much dancing as punch body poppin', and all in various outfits. A tight-fitting red dress, a blue spandex suit with leather jacket, and then a boxer's uniform. In the hands of lesser artists, the lyric would have merely repeated the film's title. But in choosing Fight the Power, Public Enemy were taking up the call from the Isley Brothers with their song from 1975. What Public Enemy delivered was a fusion of funk, rap, hip-hop and jazz. That's Branford Marsalis on sax. And 
lyrics that evoked civil rights and church leaders, mimicked their speeches, their audiences and congregations. And then comes the stroke of true genius. Spike Lee has one of his main characters, Radio Raheem, played by Bill Nunn, carry his ghetto blaster with him wherever he goes, which means that Fight the Power is more than just a song. It is an anthem. And it is so deeply embedded within the film's fabric, it serves as a megaphone to Lee's diegesis. Elvis was a hero to most, but he never meant shit to me. Yes, he's straight out racist. The sucker was simple and plain. Motherfucking in John Wayne. Cause I'm black and I'm proud. Already, Already I'm hyped for some amp. Most of my heroes don't appear in no stamp. Sample, look back, you look and find nothing but rednecks for 400 years if you check. Don't worry, be happy. Was a number one jam. Damn. Damn if I said you can slap me right, right here. Get it. Let's get this. When Francis Ford Coppola was hired to direct Mario Puzo's novel The Godfather, he was adapting a book that had spent 67 straight weeks on the New York Times bestsellers list. So although Coppola had just won an Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay with Patton, adapting Puzo's novel brought with it enormous expectations, not least of which was a studio that hoped to cash in on a literary property that had sold 21 million copies. Published in March 1969, Puzo opened his novel with three small vignettes, about three minor characters, before bringing them all together for the wedding set piece that dominates the book's first 20 pages. Throughout those pages, Puzo moves about the wedding, introducing us to Don Corleone and his sons. So, for Coppola, the question was where to start. How about with Michael and his guest Kay Adams? Since Kay is completely unfamiliar with Sicilian customs, by having Michael show her around, he could serve as the audience's guide. A terrible idea, I know, but I use it merely to highlight how great Coppola's decision was. The first words are delivered by Boner Setter, the Undertaker, who utters them from the shadows. His speech, which lasts over two and a half minutes, is a personal story designed to petition the protection of Don Corleone. Boner Setter begins by pledging his own oath of allegiance to America. I believe in America. But because the voice comes from the darkness, it sounds more like a prayer. Then Bonacetta cites wealth and his aspirations as an immigrant. America has made my fortune. He invokes the traditions of his adopted country. And I raised my daughter in the American fashion. I gave her freedom. But also invokes notions of obedience and patriarchy. But I taught her neighbor to dishonor her family. And then Bonacera ends it off with a complaint that the courts have treated him and his daughter unfairly. Then I said to my wife, for justice, we must go to Don Corleone. But it's not justice Bonacera wants. The Undertaker is seeking vengeful murder. Which means that the one element that unites all the other elements is criminality. More than just organised crime, this is ancient tribalism and it dates back centuries. Choosing to open with that speech, Coppola lays the groundwork for a story that will come laced with codes, traditions and rituals. Codes of silence, familial, cultural and social customs, and not just religious rituals, but also inductions into the ways of the Mafia. Akira Kurosawa's Rashomon stands as a landmark for many reasons. Firstly, he and his fellow screenwriter, Shinobu Hashimoto, were adapting not one, but two short stories. 
Rasherman and in a Grove by Ryan Asake Akatagawa. Ordinarily, we might assume that the two stories would unfurl one after the other, like a portmanteau film such as Walt Disney's Fantasia from 1940, where he took seven pieces of music and fashioned visual vignettes to accompany them. Or five years later, when Ealing Studios presented Dead of Night, an anthology of six ghost stories united by a group of people all telling one each, who then turn out to be characters in one person's nightmare. Or from 1946, where Roberto Rossellini's Paisan told six separate stories charting the Allied liberation of Italy. But for Rashomon, Kurosawa took the innovative step of fusing Akadagawa's stories together so that they were told concurrently. Some 40 years later, Robert Altman and Frank Barheit interwove nine short stories and one poem by Raywood Carver to make shortcuts. Are you competing? Competing with who? Claire, honey. We're talking about Claire. Are you competing with Claire? For what? What women compete for, I guess. Do you think he's attractive? Who? The husband. Stuart it is. He's the kind of guy women find attractive, isn't he? The outdoorsman type. We don't know a lot about them. Hope they like something other than chamber music. Isn't it wonderful, Marion, how we can skate around an issue? Always playing our little game. Film functions on the tacit agreement that what we see has actually happened before the camera, and therefore is the truth. How can it not be? Action does not deceive. But Rashomon proposes a novel concept. The actions we see are mediated through narration, which means that they may not be true, in which case our only certainty is that the narration may be false. Kurosawa structured Rashomon as a mystery told and retold from four different vantage points, none of which are consistent with the other. The contradictions remain a mystery right to the end, and the conundrum is expressed from as early as the opening line. I don't understand. I just don't understand. I don't understand it at all. I just don't understand. The confusion expressed in the opening line is repeated with variation until we hear it four times. One for each of the four accounts we will soon hear. With those varying lines, Kurosawa establishes character, time, place, and above all, theme. He opens the story in the driving rain, but despite the torrents, he refuses to allow them wash away the confusion. And while at the end, he does allow for a break in the clouds to let the sunshine peek through, he does not permit it to reveal the truth. The mystery remains just that. In the fourth and final episode of this series, we will look at a different type of vocal introduction. <laughs> 